0: If you have your Bibles, because um, people still do that, I guess. Um, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. If not, the rest of us slackers will follow on the wall. Um, 1 John 3, 11 to 18, we'll be reading this morning. Um, while that goes up, I'm just going to pray for us real quick. Father God, we thank you that you're alive and you love. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're alive and you love. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're alive and you love. God, we pray this morning that we are willing to commit ourselves to not just being alive, but to love. Help us to love like the Father who gives. Help us to love like the Son who lives. Help us to love like the Spirit who loves us. In your holy and precious name, amen. In First John 3, 11 to 18, we read, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. When I was preparing for this sermon, my wife teased me, which she likes to do from time to time. But it's 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 the, the familiar teasing where it's like you've been together enough that it's not threatening You know, it's like when you're dating, you can't really tease the person because you're putting your best foot forward. But when you're married and you love each other and you're in it forever, you just say stuff because you love them. Um, and my wife has been, uh, just, I guess she's been realizing that a lot of times when I get up here, I say stuff very similar, a lot. Like, for example, I've been saying, apparently, I didn't know this, but I've been talking about my favorites a lot, you know, like this is my favorite scripture, or this is my favorite person in scripture, or this is my favorite passage of scripture, you know, and I I looked at her for a long time after she's waxing poetic and I was like, well, wife, I'm sorry because you're wife, so we're in this together forever, and then you're also a congregant, so God bless you. <laughs> you know, you'll know, you get it twice. So, um, But I think one of the things I've realized, though, is I get excited about Scripture. I think one of the great tragedies in my faith growing up is no one told me I'm allowed to get excited about Scripture. No one told me I'm allowed to see myself in Scripture. No one told me I'm allowed to ask questions. No one told me I'm allowed to engage with Scripture. So a lot of these people who I shared about with Scripture is because... I feel like God just opens up and I'm like, man, this is incredible. You know, I always say this and it's always weird to say it, but maybe, you know, um, some of you might even be blessed one day to, to be at my funeral, right? And one of my deep goals in life is maybe at my funeral, at least one person will get up and say, man, he was a man after God's own heart. I think about that, I think about David a lot. You know, and David is this guy who wrote these great Psalms. David was loved God. David had the love of God pouring through him. But you know what I love most about David? That man sinned greatly, right? And so for me, it's just like, at least I'm not him, right? Like, God loves me. I'm good. I didn't do that, right? Love David. Well, my other favorites is Peter, right? And I talk about Peter all the time because for me, Peter does what I would do right? Peter is a man of action, right? He doesn't always think, but he acts, right? Um, We we tell the story all the time to kids about Jesus walking on water, and we say, what a great miracle, Jesus walked on water, right? But Jesus is God, Right? Jesus spoke the world into existence. Jesus created things from no form of reference, right? Jesus is God. Like that he walked on water, it's cool, but it's not that amazing, right? The real miracle is what Peter was a man like you and me, and Peter walked on water. And if you remember in that story, what I love about that story is, you know, the other 11 disciples were cool. It's just like it's a ghost. I'm like, they say that in the Bible, right? And like Jesus was like, no, 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 it's me, guys. And the rest of them were like, okay, cool, right? Except the smart one. Peter was like, Are you sure? Because if you're sure I want to walk out there with you, and I was like, my guy, this is me, right? But I also love certain scriptures because they change my life. For example, Psalm 119.18, right? It says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous truths in your law. Changed forever how I looked at the Bible, right? How many of us go to the Bible because we need to? Or how many of us go to the Bible because we have to? How many of us go to the Bible and we don't even know? It's just like, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a Christian, Right? But that verse changed me because it was just like, wait, first of all, I need to acknowledge that when I go to Scripture, I need God to be the one opening my eyes, right? It's not about me. It's what he has to say, right? And then the second part about that verse is that I may see wondrous truths in your law. Like how many of us go to the Scripture expecting to see wonderful things about God, right? Changed my life. Another verse that changed my life is Ephesians 2.10, right? A lot of us grew up in Sunday school who grew up in church. You say, for by grace we've been saved through faith and are not not of our works. I love that verse. I'm like, yeah, Jesus did it. I got it, right? But we'd always stop at 9. And then one day I was in college. I read verse 10. It said, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that changed my mind because I'm like, okay, if God spoke the world into existence, but he looks at me and says, you are the highlight and pinnacle of my creation, right? God spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light in thousands or millions of years, however you want to count. We don't know what light is. We're still trying to figure it out, right? But God looks at you and he says, you are the pinnacle. You're the greatest thing I've created, right? Blows me away. If you do you know what workmanship, talk to an artist, right? The idea that God has crafted you, he's formed you, he's molded you, he's made you who you are, and he looks at you as his beloved. That is a blessing, but then I have passages that are my favorite passage, and this is my favorite passage, right? In 1 John 3, 11, the reason you know this is my favorite passage, if you've been around me for more than 10 seconds, you've been in this church for more than 15 seconds, right? You've probably heard me say or preach or pray some semblance of this, right? Live and love like Christ lived and loved, right? When I read this in 1 John, it forever changed my life. It became the boiled down essence of my faith. It became what I want to do all of my days. It became how I understood who God is. It became what I realized our call is. It became what I realized God wants all of us to do. What is that? Live and love like Christ lived and loved. Live and love like Christ lived and loved. I love this passage so much. I spent so much time in it that I got to shout out my ninth grade English teacher. because She changed my life too. Mrs. Bivens, God bless you told me about this thing called alliteration, right? And when I looked at this passage, I saw three different C's, right? The first is the commandment, love one another. It's a commandment, not a suggestion. The second one is the call. The call on each of our lives is what? To live and love like Christ lived and loved. And the third is the commission or the working or what we're supposed to do and how are we supposed to live and love like Christ lived and loved in deed and in truth. So this morning, what's God asking you? Love one another, what should your respond be? I will live and love like Christ lived and loved. And how are you going to do it? You're going to do it in deed and in truth. See, this commandment to love one another is something that's very, very familiar to John. One of the things I love about John is somehow, some way, everybody thought it was okay that he was the one who called himself the disciple Jesus loved. Right? Like, there was no objection to it. Like, everybody was just like, yeah, that sounds right. Right? Like me, I would have been like, excuse me, he loved me too, like John. Can I get like disciples he loved or John and Hank, right? But the thing I loved about John when I got deeper and deeper is you realize that John did have this unique relationship with God. He had this unique relationship with Jesus. Like out of all the people, when Jesus is dying on the cross, right, he looks down and he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. It was Mary, his mom, he trusted John to take care of. John was probably his best friend. But I think one of the things we can learn from John is simply this. If you learn it from Jesus, you're supposed to pass it on to someone else, right? One of the great tragedies of our faith is that we've made it too personal, right? It's about how am I doing with God? How's my personal relationship with God? How are me and God feeling today? But John calls you back to simply this. If Jesus thought it to you, pass it on. So my first question to you this morning is, what do you learn from Jesus? What if Jesus told you? And the second half is, how are you passing it on? Because it's not just about you and God. My Bible says, for God so loved the world. It's not just about the fact that God's blessed you with gifts and abilities. How are you using those gifts and abilities for his kingdom? It's not just that God's blessed you with blessings. How are you being a blessing? It's not just that God has blessed you with talents. How are you giving yourself? What are you passing on to your world around you? See, what John learned from Jesus is the commandment to love one another. You know, we do a good job during Holy Week to go back to the, the, the stations of the cross or, or the steps towards Calvary. But I think we do better to read that whole section all year round, not just during Holy Week. Because if we go back to John 13, the same God I just talked about who was the God of the universe, who spoke the world into existence, stopped to wash his disciples' feet. I didn't grow up Anabaptist. so I remember my first year at this church, we had a Monday Thursday service. I'm like, first of all, what's Monday, right? And then once I got through that, and like, it's a foot washing service. I was like, what do you mean foot washing? They're like, yeah, we wash feet. And I was like, these white people are crazy. But along I've dwelt into John 13, one of the things I've realized is that the same Jesus that we call the God of this universe, right, the job of the lowliest servant was to wash feet in a dusty culture where everyone wore sandals, where people probably didn't have the, the, the PhD dermatologists, dermatologists and podiatrists that we're blessed with. The lowest job was to wash feet. And I talk about how the same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who created us, the same God who's on the way to Calvary stopped to wash feet. If that's not humility, what is? But I think the other thing about that is that even after he washes feet, Jesus predicts Judas' denial. And I don't think we dwell on that a lot. Because yeah, he, Judas was bad. He denied Jesus, right? But one of the things you have to recognize about the, the betrayal was that Jesus spoke to tens of thousands, right? During his lifetime, the best estimate, maybe thousands believed, right? We know that out of the thousands, he felt comfortable enough sending 72 out. But then of that 72, he had these 12 disciples, You know, a lot of times in our culture, we might take selfies and pictures like, these are my people, right? This is my crew, right? The disciples were Jesus's people. These weren't just random people. These are people who lived with him who slept next to him, who were hungry when he was hungry, who were chased out of town when he was chased out of town, who were berated when he was berated, who lost their families. These were his people. They were with him night and day for three years, and yet still one of them betrayed him because they wanted their kingdom to come, not God's kingdom to come. We do well to dwell on the washing feet, but we also have to remember that Jesus had his own best friends, were the ones who betrayed him, and even the ones who didn't betray like Jesus fled when the cross came Jesus was denied and betrayed so he washed his feet he predicts the betrayal and then at the end of John 13 he says a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must also love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples One of my um, roommates, after college, I was blessed to to live with roommates for a couple years, and and, and staff makes fun of me. They might even call me a little OCD, but I I blame it on being a child of the Civil War. You know, it was trauma, so I like controlling my own space, you know? Um, But when you have roommates, it's kind of hard. And and my one one roommate, Josh, I I say his name, and I hope he listens to this sermon because he needs to be humbled, right? But when when I lived with Josh, Josh would do these things that was just like, it made it hard to love the guy, right? So, for example, he'd be like, hey, um, I'm, I'm having some people over. And I was just like, okay, cool. I'm in my room. He's like, yeah. But there's dishes in the sink. I was like, okay. Like, I didn't even eat. Like, I got takeout. Need a burrito. I'm good. He's like, they're my dishes from last night. And I was just like, oh, okay. So come wash them because your friends are coming over. He's like, I can't make it. I got work. And I was just like, so why are you telling me? He's like, can you possibly wash them for me? I was like, no. And then he'll say this. They will know we are Christians by our love. And I was just like, I hate you right now, right? <laughs> um. Another one he was notorious for doing is like, we'd all be sitting around, and it's just like, hey, I'm going to go get dinner. He's like, okay, cool. Do you want anything? No. You go to the store, you get your food, you come back, and as soon as you walk through the door, it's like, dude, I wasn't hungry before, but now I'm hungry. Can you run out again and get something? I'm like, really? You got a car? He's just like, they will know we are Christians. So this idea of being known by Christians by our love was not one that was new to me or one that I liked, right? I'm just like, you're annoying, Right? But the thing I think about, though, is that Jesus give this to John. I think John's giving it to us. And I think that's a good reminder to all of us. How is this world going to know you're a Christian? By your love. How's this world going to know God loves them? By your love. How's this world going to know God's working? By your love. How's this world going to know that God's alive? By our love. The thing that's fascinating about this passage is that when we see love one another, I think we've become really good at generalizing loving one another, right? We've made passages like this about loving your neighbor, and the irony is this is not about neighbors, right? In John, he's writing to the church, for the church, and what the church should be doing, right? Now, there's a lot in the Bible about loving your neighbor. In fact, there's more in the Bible about loving your neighbor than just about anything else you can come up with, right? But John is specifically talking to God's people. The word he uses here is brethren, right? Brethren in Christ is where we stole it from, right? It's a Adelphoi, right? Which is Greek, but and the closest we have is Philadelphia, right? Fellowship, brotherly love, and all that. But why this is important for John is that this is not a generic or, you know, like just ambiguous commandment, right? Like John is saying a lot of us are really good at loving the world, but a lot of us are really bad And loving the person next to me in the pew. John is saying, you know, you can say love your neighbor and love others, and it's very, very generic. But John is saying, but do you love the church? Do you love the person next to you? Do you really, really love them? And this is really convicting to me because also in my early 20s, I became really good at critiquing the church. I became really good to tell you all the things the church isn't doing, all the way the church fell short, all the way the church is letting us down, all the way the church is not looking like Christ. I became really good at telling the church what it was not. But one morning I woke up and the Spirit said to me, but Henry... That's what that's what the spirit calls me, Henry, my birth name. (laughs) Said, but Henry, you are the church, and that changed me forever, because I realized that if I'm only good at critiquing you, do I really love you? If I'm really good at telling you all the ways you're incomplete, do I really care about you? If I'm really good at waxing poetic about all the ways you fall short, am I really just not being a hypocrite because the Lord is alive, the spirit is moving, but my Bible keeps telling me that Jesus has sent the spirit and the church. So are you really good at critiquing the ways people fall short? Or are you willing to love the person next to you? Are you willing to love the people sitting in the pews? Are you willing to live and love like Christ live and love, not just ambiguously so that way you don't have to do anything, but are you willing to live and love the people sitting next to you, the people you're bumping in your everyday scenes, the people in your world, because that's what Jesus called you to do. Love. Live and love. You know, Before this passage, John explains how we're supposed to to deal with sin, right? I remember one time someone was just like, well, how are you sure he's talking about Cain? And it took all of me to be like, literally, if you go past where I ended and to the next verse, he talks about Cain, right? John started off talking about Cain because he wants us to know that God wants us to be free. God doesn't want us to be defined by sin, God doesn't want us to be controlled by sin. God doesn't want us to to submit to sin like sin is the master because he says Jesus is the master. Jesus is Lord. And we have been set free. And we have been set free. The thing about Cain here, though, in this next part is, John's first saying, like, I want you to look at sin as, like, it shouldn't rule over you. You have the control and you have the power. You have the spirit. You have the community. You have Jesus. You have yourself. You can be a conqueror when it comes to sin, right? And the reason this is so critical to John is because he says, because if you're not a child of God who conquers sin, if you don't look like Jesus— you look like your father the devil and this is convicting for me because the first time I read verses like this I'm like how do we go to 060 that fast like you know it's just like like it's just like okay yeah i live in love like Christ you know father the devil how do we get there but I got back to this thing is that John only learns from Jesus right? And remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's a great passage. And we use that passage to talk about why we need people of integrity, why we need to be people who, when we say something, we do it, why we need to be good people, right? Why we need to shine our lights. And we use that verse and it's all good, but we forget the last part of the verse where Jesus himself says what? Let your yes be yes and your no be no, because if it's not, you look like your father, the devil, John is only quoting Jesus here, because for John and for Jesus, if you obey God, you look like God. But if you disobey God, you look like the devil. If your yes is yes, and you follow through, and you're a person of integrity, you look like Jesus. If your yes ain't yes, and you have no integrity, and you have no loyalty, and you're not someone that people can rely on, you look like your father the devil. The reason this is important is because when you look at Jesus, you lead to life. But when you look like Cain, when you look like the devil, you lead to separation. Christ always leads to life. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do. We are called to bring life into darkness. We're called to bring light. We're called to bring love. We're called to see what's broken and help with the power of God, make it whole again. That's what you're called to do. So when we are called to love one another, the first thing that John says is when you show people that you love one another, you show that you belong to God. What does it mean to be a Christian? John will say, well, the first thing is you love the people you're blessed with. You bless the the people who are next to you. You're shining your light where you are. It's not just about your big hopes and dreams for the world, but the people who know you best. When they look at you, do they see Jesus? Or do they see your father, the devil? The second one that John says is love one another because you have passed from death to life. This is a very easy one to spiritualize, right? Because when we believe in Jesus, we believe that he came. The God of this universe came into our world. That's amazing. We believe that he lived, right? The God of this universe showed us how it's possible to live in a way to please God. That's amazing. We believe that he died. That the God of this universe went on Calvary's tree and let his... (sighs) Emptied himself of everything and took upon the wrath of our sins and our suffering. But we also believe that the God of this universe not only died... But he rose again, amen? And that same God of the universe is alive. So when you think about passing from death to life, it's very easy to say we need to love each other because our destiny has forever been changed. It's very easy to say because heaven has come down and we embrace it. We no longer serve the United States or all these beautiful flags around here. We live and we serve the kingdom of God. It's very easy to spiritualize that. Very easy to say I'm blessed to bless I'm loved to love. I'm gifted to be a gift. It's very easy to say, you know what? We might all be beggars, but at least we know the bread of life. Very easy to spiritualize it. But this week in preparation, the Lord felt the need to personalize it to me this morning. What does it mean to pass from death to life? See, my family, um, we're very good at using the same eight to ten names. People think this is a joke until they, like, Shell thought I was being ridiculous. Then she went to a family gathering. She's like, you people are crazy. I was like, well, yes. But we use the same eight to ten names. So, for example, you go to a family gathering from my side of the family. If you say Daniel, no joke, you'd be talking about 25 different people. Like, it's, it's like we just recycle, right? So our family is really big on nicknames. Because if you say Daniel, that's 25 people. You need to differentiate, Right? But one of the ways we differentiate in my family is we, knew, we use initials, right? So a lot of my family called me HB. No one calls me Hank. No one calls me Henry. It's HB, right? And, and that came from when I was younger, I had a cousin who was named AB. And AB was my best friend growing up. And we were very, very young. We were born the same year, same age, same grade, and all that. And when I was thinking about what does it mean to pass from death to life? I realized, you know, this week we also had a, a distant family member who passed, and I think this is what got me thinking, right? Like, whenever a family member dies, it just puts me into this, like, existential crisis, you know? I always make it through so far, but we're doing good, right? I was thinking about AB this week, and I remember that some of you know my story. You know part of how Civil War came to Liberia, and, and I was blessed to, 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 to leave, right? A lot of you know, like, and, and one of the things I have realized is it wasn't because I was privileged. One of the things I realized just this week was that my grandmother— actually gathered all her children, right? And she sat them down with the kids and the grandkids. And my grandmother wasn't just like a typical grandmother. Like her brother was president of Liberia. She was super connected, right? And she said to her kids, like parents love to do cuz you want to protect and love your kids, she says, "Hey, war is coming. There's war coming to this country. There's going to be a lot of death. I don't know what you guys want to do. I don't know where you stand on all this, but can you please just give me all my grandkids? And I want to leave the country. I've secured a passageway, and we'll be fine, and we'll be in touch. And every single one of her kids and their spouses said no, except my parents. You know, So I went and told that story, like, how come you got out? And I'm like, that's why. Every single one of them said no. And it wasn't easy. You know, we got out of the country. A couple months later, we're in a refugee camp. I remember we got a letter, and, and the first letter talked about how they, the rebels had, had cut off the food supply. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about me growing up in America, too, is, like, Americans have a way too unhealthy relationship with war, right? We think war is a good thing in America. And we can talk about that on your free time if you want to. But war is not good because people die. War is not good because people suffer. War is not good because children and women and, and people are killed fighting for flags, instead of the kingdom but in America that's something we got to work through because we always win kind of right so we think war is good in America but it's not because for me at six years old war meant that my cousins had no food and they starved to death starved to death and I remember being in a refugee camp and at six years old I didn't know what to do and they they told me they were going to bury him So I actually dug a hole in the ground, and we're in a refugee camp, so we got rations. And I remember taking my ration for the day and dumping it in a hole and covering it up because I wanted him to not be hungry anymore. And the reason I tell that story is because all of us have passed from death to life. There's a lot of us in this room who got bad reports from a doctor, but you've passed from death to life. There's a lot of us who've been abused in so many different ways. But you're standing up here this morning because you have passed from death to life. There's so many of us who've been in broken relationships and faced the wrath of broken people. But we're standing here this morning because we have passed from death to life. So it's not just about the spiritualization of death to life. We need to love because we have been loved. We need to love because we have passed from death to life. And if you have passed from death to life this morning, in a world that's hurting, in a world where people are marginalized and oppressed, in a world that people are suffering, in a world that people don't know what love is, you have to love. We have to live in love like Christ. So when John gives us this command and he says the call is to live in love like Christ, he gives us ways to do it. He says, you know, the first one, if you want to show you belong to God, keep his commandments. And that's a fascinating one because all of us in this room know of things that God asks us to do. And if we're honest, all of us in this room fall short. So the first way to follow and to love and to to say what it means to be a Christian is whatever God's asked you to do, do it, right? If God says, I want a relationship with you, spend time praying and listening to him. If God says, I want you to love, love. If God says, I want you not just to love the people who love you back like we read in our scripture earlier, I want you to love even the people you consider friends and, and enemies and foes. I want you to love if God says shine your light for my glory and my kingdom shine your light the second thing that john says if you want to love live and love like christ is just live like jesus and do what's right you know a lot of times we can complicate things right but for the most part we know right and wrong and if not you can ask somebody right or you can go and be like hey this is what i'm wrestling with that's the joy of community right do what's right Because if you're choosing Jesus, if you're choosing to live like him, if you're choosing to love like him, you will not just be people of integrity, you'll be people this world looks at because they see Jesus in you. The third part is this. I think in our culture we've over-spiritualized what it means to be the body of Christ. When I say body of Christ, like oh, the church or the world, right? But it's got to get personal. Because if we're one body who believe in one Christ, that means we're all in this together. So that means when my brother and my sister is hurting, I'm hurting. That means if my brother and my sister is being marginalized and pushed out the margins, that means I'm being pushed out the margins. And I say this all the time. When you stub your toe, you don't go, man, my elbow's working great. Right? You don't go, man, I love this knee. It's good. But how many of us think of the body of Christ that way? When sisters and brothers are hurting, how many of us go, but what did you do wrong? How many of us go, but like, like, I know you're hurting, but but like, did you try? Do you want to try harder? Oh, I'll pray for you. Which brings us to this point. All of us in this room need to ask this question. What do I need to crucify in me to give life to my sister and brother? And it sounds like church talk. But all I'm saying is all of us got stuff we can put aside to help other people. And, you know, I'm not just talking about money, right? I'm talking about time. We're all so busy, but what are you busy building? What are you busy doing? How many of us are actually pouring into somebody right now in our life? How many of us are getting poured into by somebody in our life? All of us can crucify time. All of us can crucify resources. All of us can crucify a gift. If you have a gift that God's given you, and you know what that gift is, and you've seen it bless other people before, and you're not using it, what do you need to crucify for your brother and your sister? And the last part is when we talk about loving, John says we're to love in deed and in truth. And our culture gets this, right? What do we say? Don't just talk the talk got to walk the walk or in my culture right don't just think about it or don't just say about it be about it right we value a picture's worth what a thousand words right we know in our culture what's genuine what's real and I'm saying brothers and sisters that's what we're called to be thoughts and prayers are great but so are works in action because there's a world out there that's hurting. Last month, I read about um, Stephen Lawrence. Stephen Lawrence is um, a guy that I didn't know about because it happened in London. One of the things you have to understand about Europe is that Europe never had a full civil rights movement, right? They had coalitions and people who propped up and down, but never a full civil rights movement. Another thing in our country, we never talk about how the civil rights movement was really born in the church, but that's a tangent, right? But Europe never had a civil rights movement, so they would have um, a bunch of these things come up and no way to happen. Well, in 1993, Stephen Lawrence was 18-year-old. He was a black student. He was in London. He was on a train going back to, to home, and he was actually attacked by a, a mob of white supremacists, and they beat him to death. 18-year-old student. And what was fascinating about this story was that for a lot of people, for them, some of you who are older, you might remember Rodney King or kids. You can look it up on YouTube, with your parents' permission, Right? But for, for people in London and the United Kingdom, Stephen Lawrence was their Rodney King moment. Right? And as this story played out, what they learned was, you know, first of all, that there was white supremacy. They were introduced to that, which is it's fascinating in America. We got introduced to that too. Like, wow, I didn't know this was here. Um, they are introduced to that. But I think the thing that the the British people didn't really realize is that they stopped loving each other, and they stopped listening to the people on the margins, stopped listening to the black people of color, because they finally saw a national story where the entire system let these people down. They were able to find six people who were involved in the the beating to death, and only two got convicted. Only two served time. Four are still free, right? And as I learned reading more about this family, I learned that Stephen's parents, you know, They did so well fighting out there that they started fighting in the house. So not only did they lose their son, not only was their family shattered forever, not only did they lose faith in the system that they were hoping was, you know, all men are created equal. It all sounds good, right? It's never true, but it sounds good. But they lost faith in each other, and they lost their marriage, and their marriage fell apart. And I'm sitting there just heartbroken. I'm like, why are they even talking about this? They're talking about it because it was the 25th anniversary of Stephen's death. And Stephen's father, Neville, was actually coming back to the United Kingdom. And they asked him, like, why are you coming back now? And this humbled me and made me cry like a baby because Neville said, my Christian faith compels me to look those people in the eye and tell them I forgive them for killing my son. If you're a Christian this morning, forgiveness is not just a suggestion. Forgiveness is something we're all called to do. And the thing about forgiveness, I always tell the young people, it's almost as if, you know, you're drinking poison, right? And you're wondering why the other person's doing okay and you're suffering. You're drinking poison by not forgiving and wondering why your stomach hurts. But Stephen's dad, Neville, says, I have to forgive because God forgave me. And even though that was egregious and atrocious and terrible, I'm going to forgive them because they need to know what the love of God feels like. That was so incredibly challenging to me because it reminded me of the words of a famous band who says, you know, the most amazing things can come from such terrible nights. And I thought not just about Neville, but I thought about God the Father, who on that terrible night on Calvary saw his son killed by a mob. And one of the things that's fascinating about being a pastor is you learn really quickly that people don't really remember your sermons, right? Like you hope they do and get something out of it, but they don't right? And when they do every now and then, you're like, hey, awesome. Remember the line. Cool. But one the fascinating thing is music. People remember music so much easier. And one of the craziest things I've realized in the last probably six months is there's a line in a song. You'll probably recognize the song. It's a good song, except for this line is completely not biblical. Um, but there's a line in the song that says, you know, the father turns his face away. And what's fascinating is most of us, that's how we understand the cross, and it's not in the Bible, like at all, right? Like most of us understand the cross is God putting punishment on the son and the father putting the wrath on him, right? And the then part of the justification, because it's not in the Bible, we say, well, in Psalm 22, Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? But if you keep reading on Psalm 22, it actually says very clearly, the father does not turn his face from the son. And so when I read Psalm 22, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I take comfort. Because I know when I'm struggling, God is there. I know when I'm in depression and despair, God is there. I know when I feel forsaken, he never leaves me or forsakes me. I know when I don't see him, he's still alive. My God, my God, why is God forsaken me? You can say it, but say it knowing he's never forsaken you. The father never turned his face away from Jesus. And that's why we love because we should not turn our face away from our brothers and sisters because we don't know where on the spectrum they are we don't know how they're feeling about god but i'm telling you when love takes on skin when i feel the touch of my brother or sister when i hear the words of encouragement when i'm built up by the body i see god we must love we must love my sisters and brothers The idea that we should live in love is not just a suggestion. Christ has come to show us how. But all of us, all of us in this room are compelled to love with the reckless love of God like to invite the, the worship team up. We're going we're to sing a song we sang earlier um, called Reckless Love. i also like to invite the intercessors up. Um, Shanti Michael told me her parents are here. They're very blessed in prayer. I think we're going to set them up somewhere here. If you need something to pray for, please come up. Use them. They're wonderful and they'll love to pray for you. But I wanted to close and I wanted to read some of the lyrics of this song. Because I think we can't have a sermon about how we're supposed to live in love like God without connecting the dots. And here's the big connection. God doesn't just want you to know he loves you. God wants you to know that the same love he gave you, you have to give for others. So as we're singing this song, I want you to think through who in your life that you need to speak a word of encouragement to? Who in your life that you need to be good to? Who in your life needs the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God? Who in your life might be your foe that now needs to be made a friend? Who in your life needs to know that the world might tell them or their selves might feel like they have no worth, but how many of us need to step up and say, I will pour into you. God has given us his reckless love, not because he only loves us, but God's given us that reckless love so that we can love the same way. So think about these words. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. When I was your foe, your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. But how many of us need to stand in the gap and say, there's no shadow, we won't light up. There's no mountain, we won't climb up. There's no one we won't go after so that they can know the reckless love of God that we know. Amen? Let's sing together.